The conversation with photographer and animal advocate Sophie Gamond is a discerning look into the practices of animal rescue, animal advocacy, and the pet industry's tug of war in preservation and exploitation of the very beings it claims to protect and champion. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed doing it. Thank you for listening. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Petropolis podcast. I'm your host, Taz. Today's guest is someone incredibly special. It is Sophie Gamon. She is a photographer, animal advocate, and Sophie, Pitbull Flower Power. Oh my God, holy cow. I love, <laughs> love your work. It's magnificent. And the chihuahuas, I actually, and the wet dogs, and I, I can just go on and on. You have you have multiple series of animals and they're all animals in need. So welcome and thank you for um, allowing me to chase you and get you on this show. <laughs> Hi, Tess. Thank you so much. Thanks for your persistence. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm good at that. I'm good at that. <laughs> Sophie, just get, if people don't know you, which I think is a foolish thing, if you're if you love animals, we should know you and your work oh no give me a little perspective uh, a, a perspective of how you got into this and and um what why you are putting these beautiful pities that are that people are afraid of oddly mm -hmm. um in little flower bonnets <laughs> yeah i'm so i'm a, i'm an artist uh photography became kind of my thing after i moved to the u.s uh, the camera was always my way to kind of create intimacy with people but at a distance like I really it's a medium that I really um, was comfortable with uh, and shortly after I moved here I, I realized I was really drawn to dogs and I pointed my camera towards dogs and then I heard about dog rescue and I was like wow I need to be a part of this like it's there's so much work that needs to be done I could see the photos on on animal shelters and I was like I, I, I think I could do better you know like a lot of these photos were so sad and the dogs looked terrified uh, I knew very little about dogs. I knew very little about photographing dogs, but I just went for it. And I guess I discovered I had a talent for it or uh, it came fairly easily to me. I mean, a lot of work, but also um, I felt from the start, I was kind of comfortable with it. And after um, very quickly, actually, I started uh, volunteering with the rescue in Puerto Rico. And so I get really familiar with um, the behind the scene of the rescue community and how it's done and how you actually physically rescue a dog from the street and working with stray dogs and and having stray dogs die in your arms and like all these different aspects of the rescue world um and so i had a foot on both sides of the story you know i i saw the behind the scene and i i felt the heartache and i saw the hard work that these rescuers do on a day-to-day -day basis and then my photos were there to connect with the doctors um, help shelter dogs find homes. And there it was a glamorous portrait that I needed to create so I could really draw in, adopters in. Mm -hmm. And so I really, I was aware and witnessing the full spectrum. Um, and very quickly I realized that pit bulls were in a very difficult position in the shelter system in the US. I come from France where they're also banned and they have the same you know, negative image and prejudice. The media have been, you know, pondering that image you know for decades by now since mm -hmm. the late 70s um and so they really have this I, I call them you know it's like a contemporary monster it's a mythological creature 
that we don't really know how a pit bull looks like, but we know they eat babies at night and they're like bloodthirsty and all these myths and urban legends that have been fed, you know, by the media and, and um, these are powerful dogs. So, you know, of course it's a complicated um, conversation. And so I thought, you know, how can I be a part of that conversation? And how can I basically challenge the conversation around pit bulls and especially pit bulls in shelters? who are the most euthanized, the less likely to be adopted. Um, and I, I kept meeting dogs that were wonderful dogs and mm -hmm. would sit in shelter cages for years because of their looks and the prejudice people had. And so one night I just had the idea of putting a flower crown on them. And I was like, sure, you know, I mean, I could try for a couple of photos and then I'll just move on with my life and I'll work with other dogs that are at risk, like black dogs or senior dogs. And from the first images, I realized, oh, no, this is not going anywhere. <laughs> the <laughs> demand for these images, you know, people were hungry. And, you know, you had the people rescuers that were like, oh, my God, thank you. You're helping us. Our dogs are getting adopted thanks to you. And you had people families that said, finally, you, you're giving an image of my dog the way I see my dog. Soulful yeah. and playful and, and beautiful and safe, you know dignified and so i realized you know i had to continue this project and so it, you know it's been years and i've done about 450 portraits in the series 450 and you keep doing them yeah i mean since covid 19 and all that you know i i, I wasn't able to go to shelters and also after 450 portraits <laughs> and flower crowns you know <laughs> uh, i think i needed a, a palette cleanser a little bit as an artist you know after a while you feel like you really going in circles a little bit. So mm -hmm. I love this project. I don't know that I'm completely done with it. I can't let go of it, but um, it's been nice to have a little break and, and a breather because it's been since 2014. So six, seven years since I started the project. And yeah, it's been a roller coaster. And you just recently, before COVID, went to South Korea, dog meat farm. Yeah. Yeah, so when I started taking photos of dogs here in the US, like I really wanted to document the full spectrum. So I worked with, you know, the full spectrum of dogs really <laughs> from, at the same time I was photographing stray dogs in Puerto Rico. I was photographing chihuahuas that were dressed up in expensive garments and, and doing dog pageants in New York City. Mm -hmm. So I really covered the full spectrum. And uh, in, in 2019, um, I was invited by HSI, Human Society International, to join them um, on one of the dog meat farm closures that they do. What I love about their program is that they basically work with local dog meat farmers um, who want to shift their business and don't want to work in the dog meat farm industry anymore. And uh, HSI basically provides them with a support system where they say, okay, we're going to sign a contract that you agree you will never work with animals again. And we're going to help you close that farm. We're going to rescue all the dogs, find them homes. And, um, and we're going to help you, you know, get to the next step of your journey. And if these farmers end up working in construction or, or they turn to humane farms like fruits or vegetables. And it's a beautiful partnership, which is not just about rescuing the dogs. It's also about setting up these farmers for, you know, a life. Mm -hmm. Because um, they, they're making an important decision for their families and I think it's wonderful that HSI supports them as well. I always say that we cannot save animals if we don't take care of the humans as well. Absolutely. Animal wellness comes hand in hand and paw in hands with human wellness. Mm -hmm. 
there is is there an actual palette for dog meat? I mean, it, this is that's a reality. Yeah, so it's you know it's a complex, and I think I still have to, a lot to learn about it. But mm -hmm. from what I know so far in South Korea, at least, it's not really a, a widespread tradition. It became very popular after the Second World War because people were starving and there was no food. There was a food shortage and then they had a bunch of dogs running around and they were like, oh, well, I guess, you know, and nowadays it's more, um, by the way, if you hear a toy, I'm sorry, my dog is, is he always decides to chew on toys and squeaks. Just giving a fair warning. Dog noises in the background. Perfect. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, in South Korea nowadays, it's more um, a tradition. So the older generation still does it there's a dog meat festival that goes on every summer mm -hmm. people right. know the chinese one the yulin festival but yep. it's similar you know in south korea where um dog meat is is said to have all these magical uh, I, I, I know the curative uh they cure a lot of yeah. things and, and, and they help in blood and you know it, it works. yeah it's Don't always you know it's it's it often comes down to men virility. <laughs> you know, it's it does. So, it's oh always about men and that. you know <laughs> appendage. <laughs> so there is, you know, still a, a bit of a tradition there. But the authorities in South Korea, um, uh, I think the president has adopted a dog. Uh, the young generation is not interested in dog meat, and there's a really strong movement of uh, dog advocates and animal advocates. Uh, that do a wonderful work. And so I, I love that HSI is able to support their efforts because it's not about coming into a country and say, oh guys, you're so misguided, stop eating dogs. It's about supporting a local effort that already exists. These people are already fighting for this. Um, it's really a tradition that's dying out and HSI estimates that it should end within the next five years, probably in South Korea. Mm -hmm. They still have, a, I believe about 10,000 farms left uh, these range from really small farms to really big operations. So the farm I visited was on the smaller side of things and the farmer was younger and he actually kind of cared about the dogs. He wasn't, I know that other farms are ruthless and the dogs are really treated like, you know, really poorly. This farm, he, he seemed to care, like he would put frozen bottle of water with the puppies to because it was so hot it was in the mm -hmm. summer and it gets super hot over there uh, he would shield the dogs with you know tops and things from the sun so you could tell that and he had named a bunch of them um what i've discovered on that farm too is that usually dog meat goes hand in hand with breeding and dog fighting mm -hmm. these are like operations that usually cover a bunch of different things so this right. particular farmer he would fight some of his dogs and um with some neighboring neighborhood you know dog fight like it was really strange but it, it and he also had dogs purebred dogs there's a lot of purebred dogs on dog meat mm -hmm. farms because it's kind of a it's it's an activity of opportunity so basically one day he said oh there's this he was laughing so hard at farmer and he said so funny story funny story this dog that you see right here in that cage one that just wandered on my farm and i thought oh isn't that one of my dogs so i put him back in this cage and then i realized oh no it's another dog that looks just like one of the dogs i have isn't that funny? And I'm like, yeah, very, very funny. <laughs> so you have- It's amazing what they like, find amusing. Yeah, they, it, but it's also yeah. like they operate like animal control and, and yeah. shelter because people also dump dogs at those meat farms. Mm -hmm. And so some of these operations, it's strange. Like it really covers a, a, 
a big spectrum of things. Ultimately, it's really an industry that is dying out, at least in South Korea. Uh, they still have dog markets. Like one of the dogs that I helped bring back uh, from South Korea to the U.S. was a little adorable long-haired chihuahua. She was so sweet. She stayed with me and she flew back with me. Like it's an 18-hour flight and she didn't make a peep for 18 hours in her little bag. Like she was like the perfect cute little doggy. And she was being sold at a market as a tonic, which is the most horrific, one of the most horrific thing about this this whole industry as a tonic so basically you have these little dogs that are sitting on the shelf and people come and just say oh yeah i want this one and then they put the dog alive in a cooker pressure cooker and then they basically melt the dog and they make a drink out of that and that is supposed to help with virility and and Mm -hmm. energy and all that and it's to hold that tiny cute pet dog because this was not a wild dog that ran in the street. This, this was a dog that was meant to be a pet, you know, a dog that seeked human contact. And mm-hmm. you really have a cognitive dissonance of like, how can people, because these dogs seek contact. They're not, you know, some meat dogs are so feral yeah. that you could almost understand that farmers don't see them as pets because those dogs are afraid of humans. They want nothing to do with it. You know, they hide in their cage. And I could almost understand. We have wild animals everywhere. We have wolves, we have tigers, we have bears. It doesn't mean that we have the right to kill them because Absolutely. or boil them alive because yeah. you know, someone thinks that they will have, you know, their their testosterone levels are going to go through the roof so oh, they can I, sex. Yes. Screw and, that. and obviously I'm completely against all of that. I'm just when I say I can almost understand I'm it's really me trying to, I always feel like if you can understand the other side, absolutely, you are better armed to fight the problem, right? So I always come from that, that uh, no, position I, I with breeders as well. I, I also yeah. <laughs> am taking it, taking it yeah. in as there is, there's a repulsion. I mean, I, I'm repulsed by yeah. it along with trying to understand with you what the other side is thinking. Right. Part of it is cultural part of it is I mean yes and no I I always feel like the cultural conversation is weird you know because it's like I don't know it's almost like it's sometimes like for example physical punishment you know I grew up and and in a family where you know we were whipped and sometimes when I would share this story with people they'd be like oh yeah but back in, in those days you know that's what you did you whipped your kids and I'm like you know what no it's not a cultural thing because not everybody is whipping their kids and not everybody was. And at some point you make a decision on what kind of life you want and how you want to treat the people and the humans and the animals and the planet around you. And I think humans are so used to take the planet and the animal kingdom for granted and to subdue it and to do whatever they want with it for their own benefit. And we're so used to that, that a huge majority of the population can't even think differently. It's so ingrained in us that, oh, yeah, you just take what you want and what you need. Do you think that nowadays... always more? There isn't going to be always more. Well, first, there's never going to be always more. But also to think that nowadays there are still, you know, a-holes that go and hunt endangered species just to put a trophy, mm-hmm. you know, and, yeah. and a, a tiger's head in, in their bedroom or whatever. Like, it's sickening. It Where were you when in the 80s, you know, we, we show, like, 
those animals being instinct and like we all grew up with these stories of animals getting instinct and and the need to protect them and like where were you when these conversations were happening that nowadays you still go in africa to hunt the last of its kind because the it's fun and you pay 50 grand for it like it's sickening we act like we are so superior yeah very strong sense of identity and and your place in the world yeah absolutely and here we are we have dog fighting we still have greyhound racing um we have uh we have canned hunts people from the u.s go all over the place and pay fifty thousand dollars to be able to sit in a treehouse and shoot yeah. at an animal that's grazing a while oh, no. and then oh, my God. You know, trophy oh. hunting so we yeah. have all this and then we have the pet industry yeah let's bring that back to the pet industry <laughs> let's bring it back to the pet industry because we have the pet industry real estate taz <laughs> you know we have like the pet industry joint advisory council that um is okay with breeding and puppy mills and they're certifying these groups to have these abusive environments where these animals are bred over and over again and they're sold for mass profits i could buy a dog a pup i could buy dog puppies to to sell in my store if i wanted to you know 30 40 bucks each but i can sell them for three thousand four thousand dollars each my profits are exorbitant why not keep an industry like that going oh. so you know and then i see the same industry writing articles that were running out of dogs. Right. You know, pet industry papers running articles that we're running out of dogs. We have to be sure. careful. And meanwhile, the shelters are how many animals are put down every week? Uh, it's the whole breeding. Ugh, I don't even know where we can begin. The, Taz, you're going to have to help me because well, help this, this breeding conversation <laughs> is it's a monument and it, it's very complicated. I would say that, you know, it's very hard for both sides, both both ends of the conversation uh, extreme, you know, to see eye to eye, because on one hand, you have rescuers and the rescue um, uh, community mm -hmm. that picks up the pieces, you know, and see the damage that breeders do. And of course, they're going to be completely against breeders. And I get that. And then on the other side of the spectrum, you have breeders that uh, consider themselves responsible and ethical and try mm -hmm. and do it for for reasons, for example, um, integrity. For breed and yeah, for, yeah, for that, for, to to preserve ancient breeds, to create service dogs, you know, dogs for the blind, military dogs, working dogs, and yeah. and to keep um, that that diversity that exists in the dog community, which is amazing, and it's something that we've been celebrating for for you know a century and a half, and like so, it's you know we have those both ends, and they're never going to see eye to eye, but then there's this big chunk in the middle that I think we have so much work that can be done mm -hmm. to create a more ethical system and that protects the animals and protects also the humans. Absolutely. So let's dive into the conversation. Let's dive into it. So um, you did a whole series about uh, you know, figuring out who is a bad breeder and who is a potentially good breeder. You know, there's a lot of emotions, just like I can't tell people what to eat, even though I want to tell people what to feed their pets and how to feed their pet. There's a lot of emotions that go with um, getting a dog or adopting an animal or buying an animal. And sometimes I think the shelter system makes it 
not the shelters, but rescuers make it difficult for people to adopt. And part of that is their own emotions, their own hangups. And then the other part of it is really shitty people out there who shouldn't have pets. I mean, you look at during the pandemic, so many people getting dogs, people that shouldn't have dogs. They shouldn't have kids for all, uh, but okay, I'm going to shut up. I'm not that kind. You could be as kind as you want, but you don't have to be. Um, But there are all these puppy mills. Like when was it? Saturday, I had somebody call me and ask me if I had um, the powdered milk for puppies. I said, oh, you just had, you know, you have a puppy. Did you find him? And he said, no, no, no. I just picked him up from, uh, from the store. And he's seven weeks old. Oh my gosh. Yeah. I know. And I said, well, no, I don't have the powdered milk. I have goat milk. You can use that. I said, you shouldn't have a puppy at seven weeks old. Should be still mom. Yeah. And he said, well, I saved him. I said, for (laughs) $4,000. I mean, I was such a bitch, Sophie. I was such a bitch because the anger came out. And my need to go do something. But what am I doing? I'm on the phone. And I'm just mm. reacting. And that was yeah. completely wrong of me. I could have helped educate. But this person had the this animal. Oh, but it's, you know, we it. all get tired of educating because, you know. How much people, education are you going to do? How much education? And it's all out there. You know, when people still tell me, oh, my God, I didn't know about puppy mills. I'm like, what? Are, are you living under a rock? <laughs> because Well, that's my thing. Know, they so know it's, everything it's exhausting else. sometimes. They yeah. know everything else. They walk into my pet store. They go to the vet. They tell the vet what their job it needs to be. But will google everything but they don't google where their animal came from well taz i have to say though that you know i have friends who are really vested in the rescue community who have been um fallen into situations like this i have a good friend who was involved in the rescue communities here in the u.s and moved back to the uk and all her dogs are rescues and she was never going to buy from a breeder and she got lured into it and then she realized she had bought from a puppy meal and I think those conversations are so difficult because it's not that black or white and we, we can all fall victim. And I think when you're in the, in the rescue community, you don't go to puppy stores. So your eyes are, you know, you can look in one direction and, and, and fight for that fight, right? Mm-hmm. But if you set a foot in a pet store and you see these puppies that are, you know, sick or some of them half dead or are being mm-hmm. mistreated or whatever, and then the, the, the seller tells you, oh, I'm going to send this one to the farm because it's not selling or it's sick. Like, what would you do? You know, I think it's, it's, it's easier to have blinders on and to, to judge other people when, when you don't have to walk in those shoes. Yeah. But I'm trying to understand, yeah, of course, if you're somebody that lives in a neighborhood and every day you walk past that stall and you, your kids go on the window like, oh my God, mama, look at the puppies. I want a puppy, I want a puppy. After years and years, you're like, no, no, we're not getting a puppy. And then one day you're like, you know what, let's get a puppy. And the first thing we need to do is stop sending puppies in puppy stores. That's a given. Exactly. We also need to stop um, allowing puppy sales or animal sales on Facebook and Craigslist and all these websites mm-hmm. because that opens the door to a lot of neglect and abuse and, and terrible situations. Um, so th- there's a lot of work that we can do with educating people on what they're actually buying and also on, on trying to curve the offer for that demand. You know, do you really think education matters anymore, or do we need to change legislation and not allow these animals oh, to yeah. be bred anymore? I mean, that's I think the first. I mean, 
okay, so I, I'm in two minds about this because yes, ideally regulations need to be, you know, dogs need to be better protected. Animals need to be better protected. But in this case, we're talking about dog breeding. So we need better regulations. We need laws. We need people that actually care in, at the authority level to actually implement change. Mm-hmm. Um, in the past few years, you know, the, the number of investigations and um, uh, penalties that have been given to animal uh, businesses that were caught in cruelty cases has declined to almost 100%. There's like a handful of them now every year. Uh, it started during the Obama administration, but during the Trump administration, it's been accelerated. And now they even have all the investigators of the USDA that were quitting and saying, we can't even do our job. They would go and seize the animals in cruelty cases, and then they would be asked to return the animals because it's a business. We need to respect the business and we yeah. need to work with the businesses. So yes, at the law level, we have to pressure. We have so much work to do to lobby and make sure authorities take this seriously, right? But this is going to take, it's an uphill battle that is going to take a lot. Or the right person in charge, I don't know, but it's going to be a very complicated conversation because this is America and now you're entering the world of capitalism and business. Yeah, it's a $70 and, billion dollar industry, the pet industry, and it's not all food. And yeah, of it's course. And so, but even like puppy mills and, and breeders, like, it's, you know, there was, um, I forgot who it was in, in the Trump administration that said, yeah, these are more and pop, you know, sh- shops, basically. Mm-hmm. You can't just shut down businesses. These people need to feed their families. So there's a lot of resistance in America in particular, like is a good example because of that culture of, you know, you have to provide for your family and, and you have to do business and marketing at all costs, you know, and mm-hmm. even if your product is dangerous or has not been, you know, vetted or approved, or even if the animal is dying in the back of your truck, like there's something about profit and, and yeah, making a business and making a living that, that supersede any, anything else. I feel right. like in Europe, we have more protections because, you know, before you can sell a product, you have to jump through a lot of hoops, way more than in a country like the US. So the, the consumer is protected, the, you know, there's more protection. Here, it's like, whoa, you can launch. Anything goes if you, if it makes money. And, yeah, oh, yeah, if you have enough money. money and lobbyists to actually work, yeah. work it through. And the industry has plenty of lobbyists that actually yeah. work it through the uh, various angles. It's it's kind of scary, the resistance we're meeting against Papi Mill, which should be a given. It should be a given nowadays. So there's that. And then to go back to your question about education. So while this is happening or not, because the lobbying is going to take, I don't know, I don't know how much longer, I think grassroots people like us can do the education part with people because so many people just don't know better and yes sometimes when they know better even when they know better they fall victim of the Mm -hmm. system you know sadly like i mentioned my rescue friend um and because it's never just black or white but in terms of education and that's why i created that article and those slides on how to spot a bad breeder it was difficult for me to go there because i didn't want to give the impression that you know i support breeding but Oh, it's so, such a difficult conversation to have. It's, it's uncomfortable when you work in the rescue community. Mm-hmm. But I figured, you know what? People are going to buy puppies. People are buying puppies. In my neighborhood during the early pandemic, it was insane. My neighbor got a puppy and he probably paid at least five grand for that puppy, which is supposed to be a fancy breed. And I look at the dog and I'm like, this is a Labradoodle, AKA <laughs> the cheapest mutt you can produce in a puppy meal. Like, um, I don't know where they got their puppy, but that puppy is not even a year old now and it's sick. 
and they can't figure out what's wrong with the puppy. And, and, you know, I'm having this conversation, I'm trying to be empathetic and I'm trying to be supportive. But at the same time, in the back of my mind, I'm like, oh, where were you when we've been screaming on the top of our lungs, do not buy a random puppy online or in a store, because this is what's going to end up happening. You're more likely to have a sick dog. You're more likely to, to have a dog that's been inbred. And it's just, so we still have a lot of education to do. And I think while people are still buying puppies and there's still such a high demand, it's up to us, the community to make sure we put to continue to put the word out there that if you buy a puppy, buy it responsibly. And that means avoiding certain places. That means crossing your T's, but it takes a lot. People don't want to be bothered. People don't I want, think people, people are just, yeah, they want it easy and they're willing to gamble. Yeah. They willing to be like, you know what? I'll take my chances because my neighbors bought a puppy from that breeder or from that Craigslist ad or whatever. And mm-hmm. the puppy's fine. I'll take my chances. My hairdresser recently was like, oh, I know you're in rescue. And, but, um, you know, my friend is decided to buy a puppy for their kids because they keep asking for a puppy. Though first, that's not a reason to get a puppy because your kids are little brats. <laughs> it's not a reason enough to get a puppy. But, you know, she was like, so I told them about you should rescue. But they said, no, they want to buy from the puppy store. And they're opening a line of credit to be able to afford that $3,000 puppy mill puppy. The problem is and I told her they can barely afford to pay for the food. They nickel and uh, yeah. the, they, they come in to my if store have, and will say, yeah. this is $1.89 for this can. I'm like, well, what do you want to pay an animal, pay for an animal to eat? What, what's your goal? 99 cents? Uh, you know, you got to give them meat. Meat costs money. It takes time to, you know, have responsibly farmed animals and 99% of these meats aren't coming from responsibly farmed environments. And if you have to take a credit, you know, to buy a puppy, really, and you're more likely to get a puppy that's going to have terrible health issues down the line that are going to cost you a fortune. And there's health insurance. Health insurance is, yeah. So I think we still have a lot of work to do and it's very hard to convince people. And like you mentioned earlier, one of the big issues that I really want to try and address on my social media um, is also the fact that it's very hard to adopt a dog. It is hard. Mm-hmm. People have to jump through a lot of hoops that they're not willing to jump. If I wasn't a part of the rescue community and someone said, oh, you want this dog? Here, you, we need, you know, background check, employer, you know, landlord, mm-hmm. like all this stuff. I'll be like, are you nuts? I'll just go down south, I'll walk around and I'll pick up a dog off the street myself. (laughs) I mean, I get it, I get it. And each time I have a conversation like this at the dog park or randomly with strangers Mm -hmm. and I ask them, where did you get your dog from? They always say the same thing. I try to adopt and either they say, I went to the shelter, it was too sad and it was full of vicious pit bulls, which irks me, obviously. Or they say, I tried to adopt and I was never approved or, you know, each time I would fall in love with a dog and then the dog would, like, I would not even hear back from the rescue. And then the dog would get adopted by somebody else. And then Mm -hmm. after months, I was like, you know what, screw it. I'm just going to get from the puppy store or online. I get it. I mean, I think there is different levels. Like first, the rescue community had to protect the animals they were getting. And I think we've developed an old school mentality that we have to like put the standards so high that we really, you know, really get weed out all the people that are going to be Mm -hmm. problematic. But still, still, when you do all this, you still get families that are not as good as you thought or are misguided or fall on hard times or get sick or divorce. So 
So you can't control everything. And I think it's time that rescue get a little more flexible in how they uh, vet, you know, reference check their adopters. I'm, I, met a, I visited a shelter years ago that adopted a dog to a homeless person and it was very controversial and they got a lot of heat for it. But when I talked to the director about it, she was like, yeah, that dog was sitting on, in that cage for two years. Nobody wanted that dog. And then that homeless man fell in love with that dog and they were a perfect match. What are we to, to prevent that relationship? And, and who are we to decide what's best for that dog sitting in a cage for his entire life or a chance with a homeless person? Who, of course, it's not ideal, but the dog is loved and, he, and they have this strong bond. And, and the man also needs companionship. Like, really? So when you say if you can't afford a dog, you shouldn't get a dog. Like I hear you. But I always think about those cases where, you know, there's people that can't afford a dog. When I say and you can't afford it, don't go take out a Don't buy one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. To get an animal from a store where you can go adopt them. And there are adoption agencies where they're not as critical as other rescues. I mean, I mean if you go to the shelter, city shelters, exactly. Yeah. There are lots of pits, but you have yeah. to think about think about fostering a pit and seeing what they're really all about they're just big mushes it's difficult with people's though I, I you know with people's like the problem is it's not just that people are afraid it's also that we have a lot of uh, um limitations especially in the city like new york in the city, yeah. most apartment buildings won't allow big dogs or have literally don't allow pit bulls and and sometimes all the breeds like doberman and all the breeds mm -hmm. right once I had an exhibit of, of my Pitbull Flower Power portraits in a, in a luxurious apartment building. And I realized that building did not allow Pitbulls as part of their pets regulations. They allow pets, but not Pitbulls. And, you know, I also feel like it's a way, honestly, to, to what could it, like, it's a way to not let in some people in your building. Yes. Because landlords think, Oh, only minorities and thugs and horrible people uh -huh. and blah blah blah. Loud people, obnoxious people have pit bulls. So it's there's this true image. discrimination. It's drug, you know, addicts or whatnot. So right. through that, so it's it's actually yeah, a form of discrimination. Um, it's a way to like not have to deal with um, bringing in people in your building that you you don't trust. And I think it's gross. Um, so it's you know pitbulls in shelters yes we have to change the mentalities around pitbulls but at the end of the day if you can't get an insurance for your pet because it's a pitbull you can't get an apartment because it's sure. a pitbull like i get it i understand why people don't want to adopt to take a chance here in new york because you're screwed like it, it makes life very difficult for you to have a big dogs and especially a pitbull or a breed that has a stigma so i think we also need to lobby about that to to say, you know what, landlord cannot, it, it should be about dangerous dogs. It should never be about the breed or the size of the dog. Absolutely. It should be about maybe the dogs have to pass some kind of certification or, or you know, there has to be a way around. Yes, to give this. accountability to the owners, to be responsible owners and yeah. to have that dog trained, that it all goes hand in hand. I think as humans, we have to take responsibility for our animals. And if an animal is reactive, it could be because they're protecting you. And it's because of you as the pet owner. So you can't look at the breed as being the factor there. A Chihuahua can do that as well. Uh, I mean, I, I know two Bichons that will go and bite anyone's ankle if you go near their owner. Yeah. I mean, oh, they yeah. will go attack an ankle. And they're Bichons. Yeah. They're fuzzy little guys who are pure <laughs> friends. 
So <laughs> if you want to judge a book by its cover, I, I think that yeah. is a sad place for us to be, especially at this age. I mean, but, I also think, you know, the layer of the dog training, I, I'm going to be very brief on this, but there's also a lot of bad dog trainers out there. And, and that's yeah. another layer of complication that do a lot yeah. of damage to the dog community. And those have huge platforms on TikTok and Facebook and YouTube. Mm -hmm. And it's shocking the kind of dog training techniques that they sell to their you know support their, their followers um and there's a lot of work that needs to be done there too yep yeah well i think the pet industry as a whole is a compilation of a lot of people who do it as a side hustle oh, as yeah. opposed to it being a true um job where they learn career yeah, yeah. A career where they learn everything from beginning to the to end and can connect dots and actually look at the animal's perspective. I think it's a side hustle for too many. And yeah, everyone breeding is, including. Yeah, breeders included. Yeah. And everyone considers themselves an expert because of social media, because they can put up a website and make claims. So and that's something that um, I wanna put out there. If you don't want the truth out there, you yeah. can create a whole environment, oh, yeah. you'll have followers, depending yeah. on how loud you are. Right. It's tough because dogs, animals, you know, they, they pull at your heartstrings and then it's very hard to, you know, walk past uh, a pup, puppy stall where the dogs are going to be, you know, sent back to the farm, quote unquote, if they're not purchased and, and, and think, you know what? No, I, I can't purchase because I'm feeding the system. Like it's very, it takes a lot of restraint and it takes a lot of like bigger picture we have to focus on the big picture to you know to allow yourself to go to that place like it's it's a very complicated because well, and, and you know it's the same in the rescue community like just to, to go back to what you were saying there's a lot of not a lot but there are some really bad rescues out there and it's the yeah. same thing because it's so easy to appeal to people's hearts and conscience you know by putting a, a sad story or, or a cute puppy out there or whatever Raise you get funds a lot for the of sickest animals. Funds and so now you actually have breeders that uh, have taken the vocabulary of rescue and, and mm -hmm. said, I, I get like this, this Facebook page started advertising on my page, like commenting everywhere and posting on my page. And it was like puppies for adoption. And, and the, the way they phrased it, that was like, no rescue would ever do that. Okay. They would never advertise puppies because they get already so many applications for puppies. Like they, most rescue won't even share publicly they have puppies. They'll right. keep it like hush hush word of mouth only. So here's this ad and I click on it and sure enough, they have all these different breeds that are so popular and like, mm -hmm. and it's a breeder that, that says puppies for adoption and had all this vocabulary that they had completely co-opted. That's what prompted me to create that bad breeder information and PSA that I put on my social media because I was like, wow, there's a whole world out there. And even if people, you know, are aware of shelter, rescue, adoption and all that, they could be tricked by, because they don't know enough. And so I really wanted people to have the signs. How do you differentiate a rescue from a breeder? You know, a, a, a ethical breeder, quote unquote, with a really bad one. Like, how do you, yeah, it's a lot. So how does, let's go back to rescue and um, the shelter system, like New York City Animal Care and Control, Bidewee, all these, because Bidewee, I know, gets them from the puppy mills, right? Uh, a lot of these rescue groups, actually, a lot of these, they, you know, they say the animal was just shipped from Georgia. The animal, they, these animals were just shipped from 
uh, Ohio. You know, so if they're going, if, you know, the store says we're going to send them back to the farm and you as um, the pet lover in there kind of agitated, you don't want to add to the problem. I mean, for me, I would say, well, what does that mean? A lot of people oh, yeah. don't want to challenge that. A lot of people no, of course. don't want to say. Because it's an that? emotional, it's an emotional knee-jerk reaction. I think the emotions need to come out of this and we need to treat these beings as yeah, beings it's... really need yeah. us to jump in and take ownership of the suffering that they're going right. through and make those that are causing the suffering to be accountable. We've yeah. forgotten accountability. We kind of shy away from it. Like we don't want to challenge them. And that's yeah. bullshit. We need to challenge them. And I, I think when you have rescue organizations or shelters that are shipping animals that were, you know, pulled off the farms, right? And these are these the designer breeds. If they're pulling them off of these uh, puppy mills where they would have been killed anyway um, because they're not getting uh, purchased, then I think is our shelter system adding to the problem hmm. by keeping the, the breeding going? Should we just stop yeah. and allow them to take that as a loss? And oh my God, it's, it's a lot of it's complicated, as you say. Of course. But, Something has to give. Uh, I think, yeah, I think they are rescue, and I put them in the bad rescue bag that work with breeders. And it's kind of a weird, incestuous, disgusting system, you know. And there's there's a rescue here in New York that got a lot of heat for it from the rescue community. And mm -hmm. they decided to kind of move to New Jersey and rebrand themselves, change their name, you know, to go under the radar. But basically, that's kind of what they do. Mm -hmm. um, they work with breeders and they'll take the dogs that probably had a discount. Or I don't know what kind of financial, you know, system they have in place. Um, at the same time, you know, like I, a friend of mine rescued um, a puppy from a breeder who was breeding Merle pit bulls without having done genetic testing on the, on the parents. And for you listener who are, might not be familiar, the Merle gene is recessive and it's, uh, you need to do genetic testing to make sure you get healthy puppies. Otherwise you get... I don't want to say monsters, but you get like really bad, horrible things. And this this guy was breeding Merle because they, you know, Merle dogs sell for a lot of money. They're of very money. sought after, and they require, you know, breeders that are very ethical and very serious and invest, you know, money into mm -hmm. testing their dogs properly. They require that, and most people don't do that. That guy, you know, it was like this big, extra large Merle pit bull with cropped ears, like a big dude, like everything you hate about breeding. And then he had that puppy that was like, couldn't walk, couldn't do anything. And so my, my friend rescued that puppy in her rescue organization. And he was adorable. That puppy was so sweet. And she spent months because there was a slim chance that the dog could make it and and become a no, somewhat of a normal puppy so she gave that puppy a chance and after six months she realized she had to euthanize the puppy because the puppy was never going to be you know he couldn't walk he was like a starfish you know and he, yeah. he shook all the time he he couldn't chew things he couldn't hold toys like and you could tell how as he was growing older like his brain was there like he wanted to be a dog and right. his body just couldn't and i met that dog i actually photographed him and um, it's a very complicated story and it, it was really heartbreaking. But when I think about breeders, I think about that. I think about, yeah. of course, accident happened and, and the dog could be born with deformity or a, pro or a problem. Okay. But 
these breeders, they increase that chance by so much. And then what do they do with these dogs? Do they just throw them away? Do they just expect rescue to pick the pieces? Do they just euthanize them at birth? They, like, what do they do? And, and how do we hold them accountable for this when right. it's something that could have been prevented mm-hmm. with a $55 genetic testing, you know? Well, that's the thing, the accountability. And we can't sh- use shaming in the process. I think that's where we, mm. um, as lovers of animals we use shaming instead of accountability and i think that's right. where the, i agree with you we screw things up oh yes that will just diminish the yeah. it'll it deactivates a person's emotions to the process yeah. when they're shamed enough it, it just shuts them down we're like well i'm just gonna keep going it doesn't matter no one likes me anyway yeah it shuts that i know i failed once at the dog park this woman was like oh you know i love my dog and we were chatting and then she said oh he's a yorkie and you know i love my my dog so much that i i want to breed him and uh because i love yorkies so much and i'm going to breed them and i lost it (laughs) and then my husband had to pull me away and he was so ashamed of me and i'm like ah and you know i went home and i'm like damn that was an opportunity to try and educate but it's exhausting it's really exhausting and information is um, available, Sophie. It's yeah. in our faces. Yeah. yeah. But it yeah. depends. You know what? What's interesting is um, it depends on what you're looking for. Because with these algorithms, if you're looking for, I want a puppy, all of right. a sudden, it's not going to yeah. bring up how toxic it is to breathe. No. It's going to bring of up course. the ones that are paying the most to be on, yeah. that, on Google's first page. It has nothing to do with the well being of animals, it's about money. Yeah. Oh, at the end of the day, absolutely. And that's one of the big problems. And um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I do think that to continue having this conversation, and like you said, not shaming, I think there's a lot of shaming that happens in the rescue community, and I'm always against it firmly. And I try to only work with organizations now that really align with me with that and, and won't shame. Um, I used to see a lot of, you know, when rescue would fundraise, they would shame the previous uh, family or, you know, and um, I actually fallen off with some rescues because I told them, like, I don't think this is acceptable. And they were like, well, you know, we're not here to take care of the people and manage their emotions. We're here to take care of the animals. And to me, that's taking it too far. Um, Once actually, you know, uh, I shared, I was part of a fundraiser for a dog and the person was being shamed a lot in the in the description of the fundraiser and I was very uncomfortable with it and I I asked if it could be rephrased and I said you know I can't share something like this and then the previous family actually reached out to me and said I want to tell you my side of the story and it was as you can imagine it was way more complicated than the rescue had Mm -hmm. and of course the truth is somewhere in the middle I'm sure yes but that family was completely overwhelmed and the puppy was sick and they couldn't afford it and they wanted the best for the puppy and they were so excited that a rescue jumped in and they were grateful you know and they were heartbroken and and they were dealing with a lot and I think as a rescue community we also need to be held accountable on how we do these things Mm -hmm. um and to go back to you and, and the rescue that pulled puppies from the south and all that, like, yeah, there is this huge shelter. Oh, that's one of my pet peeves. Mm-hmm. It's very well known for bringing a lot of puppies from everywhere yes. and for adopting very quickly. And when you go to their website, the first thing that it says is the largest no-kill you know, organization in the nation. And actually, 
when you work in the rescue community here in New York, you know that they don't take the animals back if something goes wrong. You have to take them to a city shelter. You have to take them to city shelters where they're likely to be euthanized. I mean, they have a chance of being euthanized. Or you have to take them to other smaller, you know, nonprofit shelters. And over the years, I've heard the story so many times of shelters that were telling me, oh, yeah, this is an animal, you know, North Shore animal leak dog that they wouldn't take back. So now we have to try and place him and the dog Mm -hmm. has behavioral issues or whatever is going on. And over the years, like it's, I'm like, who is holding this organization accountable? How is it possible to have a shelter and to claim to be the first no-kill organization? And you know you're not taking your animals back. So, of course, it's easy because whenever an animal is problematic, it's not your problem anymore. Right. So, you never have to make a decision of euthanizing. So, it's super easy. And every day I would go to the dog park. People would be like, oh, you're adopted from Animal League, blah, blah, blah. And it's very frustrating because, and also I talked to a lot of people who adopted from them who said their puppies got sick with distemper or horrible communicated disease. And they were like, then we tried to call the shelter back and nobody would get back to us. They didn't Mm -hmm. care. All we wanted is to make sure the litter knew the other doctors knew right. could rush their animals to the vet and make sure you know it was under control and nobody cared at the shelter and we were left with thousand dollars in vet bills to save our puppy and where is the accountability for this and there's so much shadiness happening in the nonprofit world animal yeah. rescue and there's no gatekeepers there's very little the public can actually do and i know rescues that have battled other rescues for years because they know the bad practice that go on and they're trying Mm -hmm. to hold these rescues accountable they have nowhere to turn to there's nothing the only thing we can do is educate the public without trying you know without seeing seeming petty because it's very hard to expose this kind of stuff and and to not seem petty and then hope that the public will not support these organizations anymore, but it's very hard. And with, with North Shore Animal League, it's, it's maddening. I'm helping a dog that they pulled from Thailand. They brought that dog all the way from Thailand, adopted that dog. And when it didn't work out because that dog had a lot of behavioral issues and was mm-hmm. feral, almost, you know, very difficult dog, the family returned the dog and um, North Shore refused to take the dog back. And so the family had to turn to municipal shelters. And finally, they, they, someone on Long Island, uh, mm-hmm. the shelter took that dog in. And that dog has been waiting for two years now. And they're working with the, you know, the trainer and they're trying to help that dog. But this is a dog that was flown all the way from Thailand. What an investment to get the dog from yeah. Thailand to here. And to, it's, it's, is it a photo op? I mean, yeah. I often think how much yes. of it is with photo op and fundraising, you know, um, because yes. those two go hand in hand, especially on social media. It's both. It's both. And I think that's why it's very important to work with rescues that uh, you feel ethically are doing the right things. It's a little bit of both. It's a little bit of, you know, when you approach by a rescue in Thailand or, or wherever in the world and they have no adopters and they're really trying to do the right things, but there's nowhere for these dogs to go. Then you take a couple, you know, and then mm-hmm. maybe you bring a couple here and there and and you feel like you're being part of a bigger movement. And it, it it's it's nice. It's nice. I've helped a, a rescue in Mexico, you know, bring dogs. I've helped Frida, you know, yeah, know, I know. paralyzed pit bull yes. that I helped bring and I fostered her here and I found her a home. And we have so many pit bulls here. So why bring a pit bull from Mexico? You'll ask me. But you know, I think if it's done like this and these dogs deserve a chance to, and like maybe you met them on a trip or like 
yes. So I think there's a way to do it at a small scale that is ethical. But then also it's true that a lot of rescue realized the marketing potential of these stories because mm-hmm. people love an exotic sub story from the other side mm-hmm. of the world. Mm-hmm. They don't care so much about the stray pit bulls, the fact that in Houston, we have about a million stray dogs roaming around and mm-hmm. chain dogs all over the, the country dogs. that are the invisible population the of dog that Ugh. nobody cares about. Yep. And they're chained day and night and all the entire life and they yep. have no life. Their life is like a tiny little diameter around the pole where they're tied to, right? So we have a lot to do in our own backyard. And yet, you know, people love a story from Thailand or from, from elsewhere. And I think you can reach a good balance. I try to do it in the way, you know, I, I've helped a lot locally and I also helped internationally. And I think there's a way to do it. I get some heat sometimes, you know, people telling me, Why do you go to South Korea or Colombia or Mexico? You know, there's so much to be done here. Um, I think there's a way to do it that's ethical and that's well-balanced. You know, with that, I would say, well, you're here. I happen to be in South Korea. I did my job there. You're here. What are you doing here? Right. And some people do. I mean, in all (laughs) fairness, it's, it's much harder to raise awareness and money for chain dogs or for stray dogs here in the U.S. than it is for you know the dog meat trade or so things like what this are we doing because wrong? people yeah because i think it's about also you know when you expose to the same thing like when i when i found my dog in puerto rico he was at a shelter an animal control facility there and he was going to be euthanized because they were like he just looks like a stray dog he looks like any other stray dog in puerto rico and i was like wow but he's he's brindle he's like such a different looking dog like to mainland standards he's actually quite unique looking right but it's obviously not why i adopted him but i was i always think about that story i think when you expose the same thing it's very hard for you to still have compassion empathy and to want to be vested in that fight so the pit bulls from my backyard the chain dogs like it's something that we it's it we know it it's right here it's 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 our own backyard so it's hard to feel excited and to see that something sexy that you want to help and it's much easier to be drawn to exotic stories and sadly i'm saying like as a human trait it's just how it is people always want to look further away Mm -hmm. um so how do we how do we make it work here even i see it listen my my audience is all about rescue it's all about mutts and pit bulls and like and whenever i would share a photo of a dog at a shelter that was a husky or pug or pre-read like this the engagement on this post will go through the roof yeah because people recognize they're like oh it's a husky huskies are cute it's a beautiful photo like 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 and it really bothered me or you know i would share the story of one of my models who died and was never adopted it would get so much engagement oh my god it's so sad the rainbow bridge you know oh angel blah 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 the next day I would share a dog that is like, okay, this dog has been sitting in the cage for four years. We need to get that dog adopted. Nothing. Crickets. Scroll right by. They scroll Crickets. right by that one. Yep. And I'm like, how do you get engaged for a dog who is already dead? Because it's a sad story. It touches something deep. No, it's because they don't realize. have to do anything other than Maybe. Yeah, you're right. online. It's true. Because they it's, don't physically yeah. have to do anything, whether it's give money right. or go pull the dog out or actually say, okay, you know what? 
I'm ready. I'm going to go adopt a dog. I'm going to go make a difference. It's mm. when, when it's easy right. and it's, it's, a ma- it's because, but it's also emotional. You know, I think it's, it's easier to feel for, Oh, that dog died and never found a home then. Yeah. Oh, that dog is, but he's safe. He's in a cage at a shelter. Like he's not urgent. If you say that dog is going to be euthanized two days from now, I, it's happened to some of my models. I said, this dog is being euthanized at the end of the week, adopted within a day. So I think when there's a sense of urgency or, or something really dramatic that's happening, people actually rally and come together. Some of my photos that were very emotional um, helped dogs get placed that had been waiting for years. So I think there is a way to rally people. And my work is all about that. It's about creating these emotional connections and, and, and really make it so that people cannot look away and cannot just ignore the fate of that dog. If yeah. every dog that you're, if every dog that you're presenting, if you can make that urgent and it does impact, is that going to lose? Oh, is yeah, the urgency going to be diminished because everyone's going to look at yeah. it? I also don't like putting pressure like this on, on my followers. And like, I feel like you have to strike a balance here. Once again, like it's all mm-hmm. about balance. Um, I don't want to be one of those anxiety ridden page that you're like, Oh my God, if I'm going to look at that post, is it going to be about a dead animal or an animal that only has a few days left? Like I don't want, I never wanted to do work like this, which is also why I stopped working with high kill shelters for, for this project because it was just too much, you know? And, um, it felt like I was just spinning on, on a crazy roller coaster that, you know, it was, it's too much. Um, so you have to strike a balance. I think, yeah, if every dog was urgent, it would get, people would get tired of it and it wouldn't have the same impact. So now it becomes numbing almost. Um, you yeah. stop looking, but listen, Taz, I think, you know, we have also to recognize the fact that, um, the numbers are really good. People are actually going to shelters. They are adopting, like the number of euthanized animals is going down. Like just in the, in the last decades, we've done so much progress. Um, I think we need to work a lot harder about the breeding because it's part of the problem that, you know, people that don't spare neuter, like there's just too many dogs that are still entering the shelter system in the US, you know, because of course every country is different. Mm-hmm. I know countries that don't have, almost don't have shelters because they don't need to. They don't have stray dogs and, and the only way they can get dogs is through breeders. So the conversation is very different. Um, in Europe, we have a big problem with Eastern European puppy mills now that are on the rise. It's a huge market and they ship their dogs to France and the UK and like it's by truckloads. And mm. so now we're seeing the beginning of that problem in Europe where I'm like, oh, in the US, it's been going on for a long time and right, right. I'm very familiar with it. I think it's on the rise in Europe. But in the US here, like the numbers are really much better than they used to be. Um, I think there's a lot of work that's been done also to advocate for pit bulls who were so overrepresented in shelters. Um, my work, but also not just my work, there's a lot of organizations that have done amazing work. And I see every day people telling me, oh, you know, I really changed my mind and now my next dog will be a pit bull. Or I just adopted a pit bull because of all the work you guys are doing. And so I think we, we have to recognize our victories and there's really been a big shift. Um, I think we need to educate people on how puppies is just not all that, you know, fun. <laughs> like I fostered a lot of puppies in, in my foster days. And I have to tell you, like each time I'm like, why am I doing this to myself? <laughs> so I think we have to educate about like the fact that adult dogs are not broken and they're not, you know, 
um, irreparable, you know, or they have so much to offer. They have, they can learn, they can learn, you know, even dogs who are not dog friendly, once you put them in the home, very often they become dog friendly or through proper introductions or proper training or just being outside of the shelter system. Mm-hmm. You know, I really want to try and gather more intel on this this whole dog aggressive thing, because I'm fascinated by it. Over the 10 years I've been doing this work, the amount of stories of dogs that were only pets, you know, cannot be around other dogs, da, 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 and then they get adopted, and then suddenly they live with a pack of chihuahuas or, you know, cats. Or... Well, I, I don't think the shelter system is a place where you can judge how that it's animal very is going hard. to be. Because yeah. they're not, you know, they are locked into essentially yeah. a cage in their mind, in their in body, their mind. physically, yeah. emotionally. And they are in doubt of what stands ahead of them. And as soon as you start opening up the pathways and giving them the proper introduction and the proper training, you see them flourish. And And the one-on-one, yeah. It's a different world. You just have to give them the opportunity. And as humans, we have that ability. We can, and many do, as you say, we have to, um, we definitely have to uh, celebrate our wins. Yeah, I really applaud you. This your photographs just bring the right attention to a breed that was misrepresented. How do you go from a nanny breed that you know a breed that nurtures and takes care of kids to aggressive? How does yeah. that? Yeah, it's, yeah. There's great books that have been written about this, mm-hmm. and I really recommend a Bronwyn Dickey book called Pitbull: uh, A Battle Over an American Icon. I believe yeah. is. Um, it's the Bible, as far as I'm concerned, it's so well documented, so well researched, and it's very balanced, which I think is always, again, the way to go. And, um, and yeah, it's, it's such a complicated thing. I think um, it, had, it was tied to socioeconomical differences and uh, poverty and racism and, you know, the, 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 the misunderstanding between humans and pit bulls is the longest misunderstanding uh, between uh, dogs and people in the history of that relationship meaning um we've there's been other breeds that we like doberman at some point it was the spitz which which was the pomeranian uh, ancestor uh, that was banned in new jersey you know and that was because of women's vote and and women's becoming more independent by the way it's a fascinating story which is in the book i just mentioned uh where basically you know, more and more women didn't want to have children, didn't want to get married and were more independent and wanted jobs and wanted to vote. And um, they loved these dogs. Like there was a community, I guess. And, um, and in, instead of having children, I guess, they would get those little spitz dogs. And so it was very threatening to the patriarchy and to the system, the social system that was in place. And, um, and so one day they decided to ban those dogs. And it basically started with stories of, oh, these dogs look like foxes therefore they carry rabies like there was a link there that was made amazing and then but you would read article back then who they would literally write like all these women that don't want to have children now they're gonna have to take the responsibility for these dogs and so you could really tell that it was very intertwined and that gives you an idea of what happened with the pitbull much later later because it was really about you know pitbulls became very people pitbulls were always popular and that's why we know them as the nanny dogs, which is only a term that appeared in the 70s. So back then they were not, in the Victorian times, they were not known as, as nanny dogs, but they were family dogs. They were dogs that, <clears throat> farm dogs and family dogs and dogs that were loved by all sorts of uh, people from rich to poor to everybody. 
Um, and then somehow, you know, in the late 70s, and they got really linked to guarding dogs and, and uh, in suburbs and in dangerous areas where people could not necessarily afford a gun, so they would get a pit bull instead. And, and then you had all these movies that came out about, you know, Cujo and all these movies where it was about dogs turning on humans, and it just created the perfect storm. And then you had the stories of dog fighting that came out. And again, to go back to the sense, sense oh, I can't pronounce that word, sensationalization. You know, sensationalization. It's impossible. I can't pronounce it, but you know what I mean. I did. Um, where the media, you know, kind of reveled in the dog fighting stories. It was the new cowboy. It was look at these badass men and their dogs and they're doing this. <clears throat> so it was not condemned necessarily in the media. It was, of course, as like something cruel. But it was also those journalists that really took it upon themselves to create almost a glamorous like in a sick way, you know? And then they would add details of like, oh, the blood and the, you throw a bag of kittens to get the dog excited, which were lies. That, that was never really um, something that dog fighters did back then. Uh, and so you can see how the media and just the general, what society was going through, the racial tension, like mm -hmm. the drug, you know, all the drug, um, epidemic and all that all yeah, these things yeah. came into play in the pitbull story and that's why it's so complex and that's why it's taken so many decades for us to try and come out of it and detangle this big ball of you know <laughs> human shortcomings and, <laughs> yeah it's very complex but I, that's why it's also fascinating and i love the idea actually that most people i mean love the idea i don't know but i'm i find it fascinating that most pitbull rescuers i know are these like skinny sexy young white chicks it's about reclaiming a dog that has been labeled for so long as this macho dog you know and mm -hmm. it's rough and dangerous ah and then you get all these like cute little chicks you know i know um, rescuing these animals that come from you know <laughs> a lot of privileged background mm -hmm. that go and wrestle i forgot oh who's the comedian that has a bit about this uh, this black comedian who's amazing oh the name escapes me now but he has a bit about this and he's like the people you know in my neighborhood everybody's like scared and then you see this white chick and she comes and she just you know puts a sweater on the pit bull and gets him <laughs> home and you know it's really it's fascinating fascinating <laughs> that we're really trying the, the community the dog communities is reclaiming that dog out of the claws of patriarchy and racism and like all these things we've battled as a society how does the pet industry become part of the positive and um how does an industry as a whole that claims that they give so much because you know you have a chewy that gives a little bit to rescue from each sale you have these organizations oh, the petco foundation petco does foundation, fantastic work purina yeah. you know a lot of these organizations give how much of a problem is the industry when it comes to these puppy mills and these breeding houses how does an industry that's this massive this rich help stop the suffering or are they adding to it yeah i mean i think it goes back to accountability um how like you would hope that an organization organization sorry like the akc would be the leader in this accountability that we want and desperately need unfortunately and i don't understand why they are I'm, I'm sorry if I, if I, I don't think we have a lot of AKC people listening to, <laughs> to this segment at this point. They, no, they probably <laughs> tuned out a long time ago. But if they're still there, I'm so sorry. But this is a dusty 
outdated, misguided organization. And it saddens me that it still has a bit of an aura to some people. So they think, oh, but my breeder was AKC registered. Therefore, I know that he was a good breeder. No, No. because the AKC makes money per registration of puppy and litters. So it's in their interest to have breeders that produce a lot of puppies and pay a lot of money back. It's a club that is, I don't know, it's all about this old idea of breeding that is, oh, it's, it's it very frustrating. It has nothing to do with animal welfare. It, it only yeah, has it doesn't. to do with profitability. I think they claim to be, but in, in reality, I don't know that they hold their puppies, their breeders to standards. They certainly uh, register puppy mills. Mm-hmm. Whether or not they are complacent, whether or not they, they know that they're doing it, I'm not sure. But it can't be that hard. Uh, so I'm not super familiar about what they have in place. But the result is that they're really not very efficient. And ideally, it would be a club like this that could take the leadership on that accountability, create a label of sorts or something. Sadly, they're not doing it. So what are we left with? I mean, it would be fantastic to have an organization that would be some kind of label. Uh, the problem is anything like that comes with, you can buy your way in. There's always a way around when you have money and your lobby, mm-hmm. whatever, there's always a way around. Um, but I think it would be great to have an animal welfare organization that kind of oversees um, the whole industry, even nonprofits. It should be easier for people to report bad practices. It should be easier for things to be investigated. Um, and when it comes to the pet industry, who is in charge? I don't know. I have a big pet peeve because as a big, you know, uh, social media account, I get approached by brands to promote Mm -hmm. their products a lot. And I refuse to do anything that has to do with food, supplements, CBD, you know, anything like that. Because I feel like it's an, it's, it's an industry I don't know enough. I'm not a scientist. I don't know how these products were made. Mm-hmm. And it baffles me the amount of companies that are just launching CBD lines. And I'm like, it hasn't even been tested on dogs. How is it that we're able to have all these supplements and health things and dental products and CBD products, like a free for all for all these companies? I'm pretty sure mostly done in China or like weird places that have no regulations that are just white labeled that these brands just slap a label and they're branding on these products. There's no accountability. There's no research done. There's nothing. And, and you see all these dog influencers mm-hmm. that willingly get money and promote these products, therefore creating a trust system because an influencer, all we have is our trust, right? <clears throat> People follow us and believe what we say because we have that trust established. And then you're going to have these people that are, willing to promote these products that are not experts mm-hmm. and that get paid for it mm-hmm. and it makes me very uncomfortable i'm not saying cbd is, is necessarily bad or doesn't work or whatever i'm not saying that because i just don't know enough about it i know that it's, it has helped dogs that you know i know well it, it um, became trendy it became trendy and it became all trendy and a now thousand companies everybody yeah, yeah. And, and all they're doing is doing labeling it. their pet pro labeling their human products for pets yeah Everybody's doing it. And that worries me. And that is very scary. And I think as a dog community, we need to be responsible on how we promote these things. We need to be responsible on, on, on what we put out there. Just because it worked for your dog does not mean it's a cure, does not mean it will work for everybody, does not mean it's not dangerous. Like we don't know yet. You don't know which source to trust. 
because there is so much money and power behind this industry yep that it is especially for a french european girl like me who is used to having a lot of the psychopaths weeded out by the authorities right because Uh we have strict regulations around products in europe we have like a list of products that are considered dangerous or whatever that cannot be used and i forgot it was like fourteen thousands, you know and that same list in the u.s has like 200 products oh the the difference when i saw that i was shocked and these are for products that go into baby products and Mm -hmm. beauty healthcare and you're like wow for a country like it's weird the things in america the thing in america is very different there's no protection of the consumer and so when you're a dog parent and you're trying to do the best for your pet where do you turn how do you even sources like you you know or people that are really trying to advocate and all that i'm like want to believe you and trust you but at the end of the day there's so little research that has been done on these things yep. that it's hard to trust even the experts i, I want scientific you. proof i want research I, I know dog influencers really big platforms yep. that are very popular that launched cbd lines yep. mark ching who used to run he, he was very big on the dog meat uh fight uh, in china oh, he runs he hope was- um Ugh. that foundation yeah, he's in jail now for killing be. two people with his health product that he launched. Same thing, out of nowhere. And this is a guy who was supposed to be a rescuer, who was supposed to be in the fight, the good fight, you know. He was part of the problem. I, I never quite liked, like, there was a vibe about it that I, I always felt icky. And, and But he did a lot for awareness. And so it's always, you know, you're like, ah, oh, he did so much work for awareness. and um, But I think he did it Take in a way that made me animal. uncomfortable. And he took advantage of the animals. And he's the one that would buy dogs from those markets. And anyway, but that's, a, that's another example of completely unvetted, unchecked, mm-hmm. free fall, just capitalist, you know, mentality that is <laughs> so glorified here and is but, but quite problematic. Have, we don't have to recreate the wheel. We can take the European yeah. model when it comes yeah. to food, when it comes to supplement, well, when it comes to luck. regulation. <laughs> Good luck with that, because I think the lobby powers in the U.S. are insane and for good and bad, you know, and I think, um, yeah, you guys have a strong tradition of of lobby and um, it's 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 scary. It can be a great power if it's done right. But sadly, I think it's used for a lot of really bad things. Yeah, I have to agree with you on that. Definitely. Oh, Especially when it comes to, end to on the a positive note. <laughs> what? I feel like your listeners are going to be very depressed after this episode. It's okay. Everyone's on antidepressants these days. <laughs> uh, dogs too. Oh boy. Isn't that terrible? Oh you my know, goodness. it's terrible. Yes and no. I mean, I'm, I've always, the first time I heard about that was when I just started taking photos of dogs in New York. I had just moved here. And I heard about this dog at the vet that was on, on antidepressant. And I went home and I was like, what the hell? And it blew my mind. I was shocked and grossed out. Over the years of my work with rescue, I've seen stories that make me understand this better. Uh, I think it's a fascinating. Again, there's a lack of research. Mm-hmm. There's very little research that has been done. Uh, But I really want, I hope that more research can be done because it's fascinating. If you think that a dog is a sentient being, it makes sense, especially when they have to live in big cities or they go through the shelter system, like it impacts their mental health a lot. It would make sense that some things like antidepressant would work. So I have 
two amazing stories in particular. Um, one was one of my flower dog models. Sadly, he ended up being euthanized. Um, the story is in my book, actually, so it's in more details in my book. When you euthanize a dog for behavioral issues, like it's it's scary. Like you you don't you want the story to be told with a lot of tact because um, you don't want people to get upset and feel like you haven't done everything you could for that dog. That particular dog was basically on on the autism spectrum, and mm-hmm. he had a sound processing. He was diagnosed with a sound processing disorder where. He would be triggered by sound and he would go into these fits and um, he was a, a strong dog, a terrier, you know, a pit bull mix. And um, under medication, he turned into a great dog that was way more manageable and, and finally started to become a normal dog. And they had such high hope for him. And unfortunately, they were hit by a snowstorm and he was off his med because the whole rescue was under, you know, meters of snow and then trees were falling everywhere and they sounded like bombs. So him being off the med and being triggered by the sounds when finally they reached him a couple of days later a few days later he turned on his handler and they realized you know we can't take a chance anymore because of course it was a crazy concourse of circumstances but it could happen again so they decided to euthanize him and, and free him from this but it was it really opened my eyes to wow what can be done with proper medication and the the second example I have is very recent, and it's a dog meat rescue from South Korea. I'm going to tell the story, actually, uh, uh, in the next few days, probably. I'm, I'm putting the information together now. Same thing, you know, a feral dog that was locked in a cage on a dog meat farm for all her life. And she was rescued and uh, brought to the U.S. And she just was completely shut down. And she would lunge and snap at everyone and just terrified. And uh, this, this amazing person, I love her, Abby, took her in because she was like, I have a spare bedroom and she's a vegan and a rescuer and she has turkeys and like, she's amazing. And she basically put that dog in that room to let her decompress. And, mm-hmm. and then she talked to a specialist and, and they put her on medication and that has transformed that dog who now is able to play with another dog and go outside. She doesn't want to be touched still. Like she still has a long road ahead. But she's not trapped in that, in that, you know, insane space where she's so triggered by everything and overwhelmed by everything and scared and just snapping at life because right. she's trapped in that state. Uh, it has helped just calm her and, and, and basically be safe in her own skin again, you know. And, and that, so I've heard a few stories like this and now mm-hmm. I'm really intrigued. How can the listeners help you? Well, I mean, <laughs> that's a question. I'm so used to helping others. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, yeah, I think um, uh, I think the best way to help me is is to follow my journey and like and engage with the content I post and give me feedback. You know, it's also it's not just about commenting to to engage. It's also I, I want to know what I'm doing. Is it helping? Like, you know, it's always great to get that feedback um financially you know people can go on my website i sell uh, merchandise and prints of my work and my book and um it's a great way to help me to support um um all the pro bono work i do with rescues of course with covid19 it feels like a different lifetime because Mm -hmm. i haven't been able to go to shelters as much in 2020 
and I don't know when I'll be able to again. Um, I'm currently working on a, a big project with HSI for the dog meat trade. I'm super excited about it. So that's taking a lot of my time and energy. Um, I won't be able to share anything for a few months, but uh, I can't wait. Uh, I think it's going to be great. And so, yeah, people can just support. I also have a Patreon account. Mm -hmm. um, so that's uh, for those people who don't know. It's like a monthly sponsorship. So you get to support podcasts or people that are creators of content. Mm -hmm. um, and so in my case, it's been a lifeline, I have to say, especially 2020, where I, I had very little income, pretty much no <laughs> income besides my what I sell on my store and my Patreon. So mm -hmm. it's great for people like me because it really allows us to focus on the advocacy work and all this stuff that don't pay back necessarily, but are such an important piece of the puzzle. And I think uh, people like me really need to be supported by the community in that way. Mm -hmm. So I'm so grateful that I have my Patreon and people have been awesome, very supportive. So yeah, that's pretty much. Great. <laughs> I'm going to have the link to your Patreon account, to your site, to your calendar. I'm going to oh, have yeah. all the links everywhere, um, all over the show notes. Sophie, thank you so much for doing this. I can't tell you how much I appreciate oh, it. Your work is magnificent. Grateful that we have met. And I want to thank uh, Princess Gracie for introducing us. Oh, yes. Tanya, I'm sorry. I always talk about yeah. the dog. <laughs> Me too. Um, she was one of my models, as you know. I so know. <laughs> I've, I've been, I'm friends with her and I've followed her journey. And it's such a beautiful story too. I hope uh, we're empowering people, you know, not just putting a heavy <laughs> weight on everybody's shoulder, but um, I think, yeah, most people just don't know these things. So it mm -hmm. starts with educating and bringing awareness to these issues. Mm -hmm.